Hello, you're listening to the Amaze Research Podcast. I'm Fergus Murray. I'm Sonny Hallett. And we're talking to Sue Fletcher Watson. Yeah, I'm a developmental psychologist. Uh, I work at the University of Edinburgh. And a lot of my research is with and for the autistic community. So could you tell us a bit about your current research projects? Sure. I've got quite a lot of projects, but Mm. I won't try and talk about all of them. I'm going to focus on one today, which is, it's called Diversity in Social Intelligence, which is a title that you two may be familiar with. And it's basically, we wanted to do a kind of like robust experimental test of the double empathy problem, Mm. which is a theory of autistic, non-autistic interaction developed by Damien Milton. And it's a really great theory, but at the moment it hasn't been really sort of strongly tested in an empirical way. And that doesn't mean the theory doesn't have value, but as a psychologist, I'm interested in testing theories in an empirical way. And so that's what we decided to do with this project. Hmm. It's not really directly addressing empathy, is it? It's looking at how autistic and non-autistic people interact and I guess how well they read each other. Yes, I think, I mean, I think that's a really interesting question because it gets to this, this whole issue of the word empathy and the way that it's used, right? So, you know, you've got the dictionary definition of empathy, but then you've got a much broader sense of how it's used, particularly in the context of autism research. But you're right, we're not really measuring empathy in the way that psychologists traditionally attempt to capture that concept. It's more about rapport, which is an equally slippery idea and specifically what we're looking at is whether or how efficiently and successfully people pass information on to each other Hmm. so it's slightly about learning but learning in a sort of interactive social way and I guess we think that rapport is part of the kind of glue or or maybe the oil on the on the cogs of learning so Hmm. those two things are intertwined So could you tell us a bit about the actual setup of the experiment? Sure. Uh, It's quite ambitious. We're doing something called a diffusion chain study. This method was originally developed for work with non-human primates. So um, you would teach a chimpanzee how to open a kind of complicated box that had a banana inside. And then you look at how other chimpanzees who've had the opportunity to watch how successfully they learn how to open the box. But the method's quite interesting because it's it allows you to get to the heart of the difference between learning for yourself by exploring something and actually copying or imitating or learning from another person, which is what we really wanted to tease apart. So you have a chain of people, eight people in our chains. You teach the first person how to do something that you hope that they've not really ever done before and um, they might have a little chance to practice and then they have to demonstrate what they've just learnt to the next person in the chain and so on and so forth down the chain. And obviously the the fidelity of what they're doing declines as you go down the chain. It's a bit like the game of um, telephone, they call it in America. We used to call it Chinese whispers, but I think probably you shouldn't call it Chinese whispers. But that's the that's like the game that we're kind of replicating. And what we're really interested in is given that we know the sort of level of skill and accuracy will decline along the chain, will it decline more steeply 
if the chain goes autistic person, non-autistic person, autistic person, non-autistic person, mm. versus a chain where everyone is autistic or no one is autistic. Yeah. And that's what we're going to find out. Uh, it's a very clever design for an experiment. You mentioned that it was inspired by the work of the autistic theorist Damien Milton. Mm-hmm. Do you have autistic people involved in the design or direction of the research beyond that? Yes, I'm very proud to say that we do, which is not something I've always managed, but is now, I think with all future projects, will be a part of it. So um, we recruited two autistic advisors to the project um, who are both paid consultants um, and both have a kind of um, personal or professional interest in the specific topic that we're exploring. Um, one of them we managed to recruit before the project started and she was on the interview panel when we interviewed Catherine who is the postdoc who's running the project incredibly brilliantly and so they've been really involved from the very beginning they reviewed the grant proposal when we wrote it and particularly one of the biggest things that they were involved in was selecting the tasks because what we didn't want to do so these tasks that run down the chain what we didn't want to do was accidentally pick something that just autistic people might find really hard. Maybe if it had fine motor, sort of complicated, twiddly aspects to it or something like that. And so then you'd get difference between autistic and non-autistic people, but not for the reason that you're interested in, mm-hmm. which is about rapport and learning, but instead just to, because of some feature of the task being just not autism enabling so that was really, really great to be able to work with them to design the tasks. And we think we've picked some good tasks. We're running three different tasks down the train and we, we are optimistic that they will show us what we want to know. Hmm. And how do you see this work benefiting autistic people in the future? Well, I think it lends validity, sort of independent experimental validity to something that autistic people are talking about already a lot which is often, I would like to hang out more with other autistic people because it's nice for me. Um, I think the biggest thing I want to do next is do a replication with children. And I think the really strong argument that might come from that, if the data illustrate what we predict they will, is that we might be trying to make more opportunities for kids growing up in schools and outside of school time to spend more time with other autistic people. I think it's very easy if you're going to a mainstream school to go through your entire childhood and adolescence without really meeting other autistic people. And I think that's sad. And we don't want to swing the other way and sort of ghettoise autistic kids Mm -hmm. in a sort of special unit, though sometimes extra support obviously can be helpful. But I do think we should be thinking more about creating opportunities for people to come together and enjoy each other's company and get that sort of peer support. And I hope these kinds of data would contribute to an argument for that. Yeah, yeah. There are some very difficult arguments around inclusion in education. And I've worked in schools with the odd autistic kids, and that's a double meaning there for odd, because they do stand out. Yeah. Um, And never more than two in a class, usually fewer... So, yeah, I'm very conscious of sort of global debates, actually, around whether trying to include 
autistic and other disabled people alongside, you know, neurotypical and able peers is necessarily the way to go. There seems to be a lot of people who are under-supported in education. And as you say, autistic people really should have the chance to meet other autistic people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it reminds me of the old, um, the little, was it Little Britain sketch, the only gay of the village? (laughs) (laughs) You know, just, just that, yeah, it's just very isolating growing up without people who haven't, who don't share your experiences. Too many of the things that we try and put in place for for autistic children and for other people with disabilities are are very focused on some kind of target or outcome or skill. And actually, I think it's just about belonging and well-being and happiness. And because we don't measure those very well as psychologists or psychiatrists or whatever, and because they're slippery concepts, we sort of ignore them in research but actually that's what everyone parent wants for their children yeah that's what people want for themselves and we shouldn't let go of trying to do something that makes people happy just because we're not quite sure how to measure happiness yeah i think that's a ubiquitous problem across our society we tend to privilege what we can measure yes yes it's like the you know the, the the story about the guy who drops his keys in the dark and he's looking for his keys under the lamppost and someone comes along and says, what are you doing? He says, I'm looking for my keys. Oh, did you drop them around here? No, no, I dropped them over there in the dark, but this is where the light is, so I'm looking over here. Yeah. <laughs> um, you mentioned that you have uh, autistic advisors for this study and that you haven't always had autistic advisors. Um, how do you sort of, aside from, you know, the example you gave of figuring out a task that wouldn't be sort of exclusionary, what kinds of things do you feel like having autistic advisors brings to the design of a study compared to when you've not had advisors? So in terms of designing the study once it's underway, Um, Other examples would be things like the recruitment materials, information sheets and consent forms and getting the wording on those right Um, and and just having the confidence when you go out to recruit that this is something that people might enjoy and that is, you know, genuinely has a sort of best interest model at heart. I think it gives you a lot more pride in what you're doing. The thing that we haven't got to yet on any of the projects that I have that currently have autistic advisors is discussing how to interpret the data. Mm. But that's going to be really great because there's your sort of unbiased scientist analysis. I'm doing a silly voice because I don't think we're really (laughs) unbiased, but, you know, we're all trying to be unbiased, Mm. right? That's scientists. That's what we do. But, you know, you have your, you know, whatever, your statistics and so on and your graphs and things. But then there's another layer that you put on top of that, which is how you interpret the meaning of what you've found. And I think doing that in partnership with autistic people will be very important. Mm. Another one of the nice things that's embedded into this study is that we are asking, so we're doing, when people come in to do the chains, for some of them as well, we're also asking them to have little conversations in pairs sometimes again 
just autistic, just non-autistic or mixed. And then we're going to get people to watch those videos and rate what they think of the sort of rapport in the pairs. And the raters will also be autistic and non-autistic raters. So that's slightly different because it's still within, you know, these are all research participants doing what we've instructed them to do. But I think having that that data set would be fascinating in terms of exposing a little bit about the differences between the way neurotypical and autistic people approach the concept of rapport and how they perceive it. I'm wondering what drew you to autism research? Uh, um, When I was 14, so I went to a great school that had a really active community service programme and when I was 14, I started volunteering in a class with autistic children one afternoon a week. And they were so lovely and intriguing. I hope that doesn't sound make me sound like a person in a zoo. But um, they had really high levels of support needs, those children. There were seven kids in the class and five staff or something. And I was going in additionally on a Wednesday afternoon and... And I would do a lot of kind of one-to-one. And I just just thought, gosh, these kids need people to understand them better. Because it's so hard to help. And so much of their day was so stressful and upsetting. And we'd all be standing around going, ah, what's going, what have we done wrong? How can we change it? And it sort of just felt like a mystery. Mm And then after that, I started volunteering on a residential holiday scheme for kids with a wide range of disabilities, including a lot of autistic kids who came on that. And I think I thought I would go into special education. I think I thought that was the right career path Mm. at the time. And then I realised that I would probably be a really bad teacher. And the concept of a research career sort of became apparent when I was Mm. at university. And I thought, yeah, that would be a better fit for me but I still wanted to help autistic kids I guess Hmm. where would you like to see autism research going in the future oh so many directions well I mean you know I want to see more autistic leadership of research and more collaboration between autistic and non-autistic people on a on a level playing field and I think that is about partly encouraging more autistic people into research careers but we shouldn't forget the fact that there are tons of autistic researchers just not necessarily researching autism Mm. so um so I don't think it's just about that and I I also think as a matter of principle it's important to partner with people who are not academics Mm. so I think it has to be both of those things at once sort of community partnership and autistic academics. I'm curious, are your autistic advisors on the diversity and social intelligence projects academics themselves? So, um, one is not. Mm. Uh, one is a clinical psychologist. Mm. So, she's sort of highly trained and has a doctorate, but she's not working, and she does sort of research within her practice, but she's not working in a university setting at the moment. So, But the, uh, the other thing I think I'd like is to see this sort of progressive participatory agenda merge more with what I consider from my training to be sort of really high quality scientific methods Mm. because at the moment I think there's a bit of a of a split between 
people who are applying participatory working to largely qualitative research, which is important and valuable, but has particular kinds of applications. If, for example, you want to go to the NHS and change their policy and procedure for supporting people with mental health conditions, Mm. you're going to need RCTs and meta-analyses and, you know, robust measurement with Mm. things with psychometric validity. And so I'd like to see that progressive agenda being merged with, you know, the sort of gold standard in inverted commas scientific methods rather than it being a sort of either or choice which is what I think we have at the moment I think autistic people so Michelle Dawson says this really well autistic people deserve the highest standards of research evidence to support anything that's being delivered especially when you think about you know standard policy in schools inclusion policy and things like that so that's that's what I'd like to see I think thanks yeah well thanks for talking to us yeah Thank you very much. It was a pleasure.